I'm here to read uh, the Bible reading this morning. And it's a long one, so if I see you with your eyes closed, I, I won't be offended. <laughs> uh, it's Romans 11, 7 to 9, 11 to 29, 33. And then we have Ephesians, a bit of Ephesians at the bottom. When I get to it, I'll let you know. Okay. And we're reading from the Message um, Translation. And then what happened? Well, when Israel tried to be right with God on her own, pursuing her own self-interest, she didn't succeed. The chosen ones of God were those who let God pursue his interest in them. And as a result, received his stamp of legitis, legitis, legitimacy. The self-interest Israel became thick-skinned towards God. Moses and Isaiah both commented on this. Fed up with their quarrelsome, self-centred ways, God blurred their eyes and dulled their ears, shut them in on themselves in a hall of mirrors, and they're there to this very day. The next question is, are they down for the count? Are they out of this for good? And the answer is a clear-cut no. Ironically, when they walked out, they left the door open and the outsiders walked in. But the next thing you know, the Jews were starting to wonder if perhaps they had walked out on a good thing. Now, if their leaving triggered this worldwide coming of non-Jewish outsiders to God's kingdom, just imagine the effect of their coming back. What a homecoming. But I don't want to go on about them. It's you, the outsiders, that I'm concerned with now. Because my personal assignment is focused on the so-called outsiders. I make as much of this as I can when I'm among my Israelite kin, the so-called insiders, hoping they'll realise what they're missing and want to get in on what God is doing. If their falling out initiated this worldwide coming together, their recovery is going to set off something even better, a mass homecoming. If the first thing the Jews did, even though it was wrong for them, turned out for your good, just think what is going to happen when they get it right. Behind and underneath all this is a holy, God-planted, God-tended root. If the primary root of the tree is holy, there's bound to be some holy fruit. Some of the tree's branches were pruned and you wild olive shoots were grafted in. Yet the fact that you have now f fed, yet the fact that you are now fed by that rich and holy root gives you no cause to gloat over the pruned branches. Remember, you aren't feeding the root, the root is feeding you. It's certainly possible to say, other branches were pruned so that I could be grafted in. Well, and good, but... They were pruned because they were dead wood, no longer connected by belief and commitment to the root. The only reason you're on the tree is because your graft took when you believed and because you connected to that belief-nurturing root. So don't get cocky and strut your branch. Be humbly mindful of the root that keeps you lithe and green. If God doesn't think twice about taking pruning shears to the natural branches, why would he hesitate over you? He wouldn't give it a second thought. Make sure you stay alert to these qualities of his gentle kindness and ruthless severity that exist side by side in God. Ruthless with the dead wood, gentle with the grafted root. But don't presume on this gentleness. The moment you become dead wood, it's game over. 
and don't get to feeling superior to those prune branches down on the ground. If they don't persist in remaining dead wood, they could very well get grafted back in. God can do that. He can perform miracle grafts. Why, if he could graft you, branches cut from a tree out in the wild, into an orchard tree, he certainly isn't going to have any trouble grafting branches back into the tree that grew from that they grew from in the first place. Just be glad you're in the tree and hope for the best for the others. I want to lay all this out on the table as clearly as I can, friends. This is complicated. It would be easy to misinterpret what's going on and arrogantly assume that your royalty and they're just rabble out on their ears for good, but that's not it at all. This hardness on the part of an insider, Israel, towards God is temporary. Its effect is to open up to all the outsiders so that we end up with a full house. Before it's all over, there will be a complete Israel. As it is written, a champion will stride down from the mountain of Zion. He'll clean house in Jacob. And this is my commitment to my people, removal of the sins. From your point of view, as you hear and embrace the good news of the message, it looks like the Jews and that looks like the Jews are God's enemies. But looked at from the long-range perspective of God's overall purpose, they remain God's oldest friends. God's gifts and God's call are under full warranty, never cancelled, never rescinded. Have you ever come on anything quite like this, this extravagant generosity of God, this deep, deep wisdom? It's way over our heads. We'll never figure it out. Then the next, the last reading is Ephesians 3, chapter 3, 4 to 6 and 8 to 10. As you read over what I, Paul, have written to you, you'll be able to see for yourselves into the mystery of Christ. None of our ancestors understood this. Only in our time has it been made clear by God's Spirit through his holy apostles and prophets of this new order. The mystery is that people who have never heard of God and those who have heard of him all their lives, what I've been calling insiders and outsiders, stand on the same ground before God. They get the same offer, same help, same promises in Christ Jesus. The message is accessible and welcoming to everyone across the board. And so here I am, preaching and writing about things that are way over my head. The inexhaustible riches and generosity of Christ. My task is to bring out in the open and make plain what God, who created all this in the first place, has been doing in secret behind the scenes all along. Through followers of Jesus like yourselves gathered in churches, this extraordinary plan of God is becoming known and talked about even among the angels. Welcome, class, to Biology 101. <laughs> I'm Dr. Plett. I'm going to be your lecturer today. And I do hope that you have reviewed Chapter 11 in your textbooks, because it is going to be essential for today. Welcome to church. I'm Jonathan Plett. And we are going to be talking about a lot of biology today, because I, in my normal life, you might say, am a researcher. And I research proteins and pr how proteins act within a cell. 
You might think of proteins a little bit when you're eating your meat or eating your legumes and be like, oh, I'm eating protein, this is good for me. But if you imagine within the trillions of cells within your body right now, each one of those cells is expressing thousands of different proteins that are acting together in concert to do amazing things. However, as researchers, when we're trying to understand um, what we're doing, Sorry, I don't know why that went ahead. Um, when we try and understand what we're doing, it takes us years and years to even understand what one of these proteins actually does because God's creation is quite amazing. However, one day when Noelle was around three, my daughter, she was asking my wife, Krista, well, what does daddy actually do during the day when he leaves me? She was trying to understand why I disappeared for such long periods of time. And trying to explain it to this three-year-old, Krista was like, well, daddy goes to work every day and he moves clear liquids from one tube to another, and he picks spots off of one plate and he puts it on another. Now, Chris, Noelle thought about this a little bit and she said, well, that's just silly. <laughs> Which is true, right? When you consider the, the implications and the understanding that Noelle had, it was something really silly to be doing. And yet for someone in my line of work, we'd be like, I know exactly what you're doing, that's really cool. And that's kind of what we come to when we're looking at the passages that we're looking at today, and the Ephesians passage especially speaks to this, is this idea that God has had this plan from before creation of how his will would unfold within humanity. And yet within our very finite lifetimes, it's very easy for us to look at what God is doing within the 80, 100 years that he might have given us and be like, that's really odd, right? We have to look at how scripture is unfolding in, in its entirety. And as we are looking at Romans, we're looking at one of those crucial points within the development and, and how God is showing how he is going to save the whole world. And how these people at that time are grappling with it, just like we ourselves are grappling with what that means for us today. So with that, let's pray as we open the word. Lord, thank you so much that we are all here today, both here physically present and those online. I pray that you would reveal to each and every one of us what you would like to have us take away from today, and may we be enriched by your word. May your spirit move. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are in this series of reading Romans backwards. As someone commented to me this week, it seems a little bit more like reading Romans roundabout sometimes. However, what we're coming to now is the end of the, sec the second section that we are talking about. And in this case, it is talking about, or Paul is talking about our common family history and how we can identify that. Within finishing up this section last week, uh, Pastor Chris brought to us this beautiful um, exhortation from the scriptures, and we we're looking at um, our father's faithfulness in this case to outsiders. So, looking at and talking to mostly the Gentiles. And he was talking as well, though, to those Israelites who had converted. And he was talking to the two groups and saying, you know, across the time, from the time when God had made his one promise to Abraham of how they were to live, how, they were, how they were going to be God's chosen people. They came, across, they came with this right notion initially that they had to follow God's laws. And that is the way they were to be righteous and that is the way they were to gain access to heaven. However, in these passages that we've been looking at for the last few weeks, we then encounter this stumbling block of the Messiah. And what was the Messiah to them and how the Messiah was supposed to be. And so what um, they missed out on as well back when they were given, you know, this, this commission, um, I guess you could say of, you know, how they were to follow God 
God's laws, they also missed out on this fact that through them, it, um, all families on earth would be blessed. So this idea that not only Israel would be saved through, um, well, would be saved, but that through their activity, the Gentiles would be as well. And so the Israelites at this point and the Israelites within the church are still grappling with where the heck these Gentiles fit. What they're also grappling with at this point is this idea that no longer do they have to rely on a bunch of laws to keep them going and keep them right with God, but actually that all you have to do is declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that that is true, and through that faith, you can join God's family. So within these, these different aspects, Paul has been talking, what I would say, in a very academic sense. Sometimes the text, I don't know about you, is kind of difficult to get through. That's why this week I suggested we read from the message, because when I sit with a passage and I'm like, uh-huh, you know, I look at the message or I look at another version of the Bible and sometimes that really helps me. So I always hope that it would help you as well. So this week we are going to be finishing up, as I said, this section on chapters 9 through 11. And while, you know, uh, we have been looking at, you know, the outsiders, the insiders, the Gentiles, the Israelites, etc., um, we can be looking at a whole bunch of different groups. And so today, what I love about this passage is that Paul then, you know, kind of takes a step back and he's like, look, kind of like Jesus, I'm going to give you a parable or I'm going to give you an illustration to hopefully ram home the idea of what I've been trying to talk to you about for these last two chapters in my message to you. And he does that by using this idea of, of grafting in and, and gardening because the people of that time, much like you know, we still have farmers nowadays, would have very much understood and very much been tied into you know, how plants grow, how we get plants to flourish, etc. So this idea of grafting in would have spoken very much to them and I hope it will speak very much to us today. Today, the big idea that I hope you go away with is that our Father God is faithful. And that this aspect of us being included in the family of faith, much like Paul is saying to them then, this is not plan B. This has been God's plan all along. And there are a number of different passages from within ours that like, they're listed up there as well as throughout the Bible that would support that. Now, to my mind, there are four different groups that Paul is talking to simultaneously, which is entertaining when you're trying to talk to that many people. However, so... Taking a, a page out of Jonathan Hoffman's book, I liked alliteration in this case, we're going to get with that. So what we're going to be talking about today in four parts is he's talking to the Gentile believers and he's trying to bring them from a place of pride into proper perspective. He's talking to the Jewish converts where he is bringing them hopefully from confusion to clarity. He's then talking to the Jewish zealots as well who are on the periphery of this and trying to bring them from a position of jealousy or incite jealousy and bring them into a, pa a fact of joyous reunion with the plant. However, we believe as well that the Bible is not just a textbook and it's not just a history book, but that it is living and active and the Holy Spirit is speaking through it to us today. And so I would argue as well that this illustration that Paul is using 2,000 years ago is just as applicable to us today as it would have been to them. 
So with that, let's go first into the Gentiles. So as I said, it's going from a position of pride, hopefully, and giving them proper perspective. Because you can imagine for them that they would have had this idea that, you know, oh, maybe we weren't supposed to be included in this family of faith, but now we are. And maybe God actually, you know, he came to a fork in the road. And God was like, these Israelites are just not getting it. These Israelites are people who are just, you know, they're not going to follow my ways. They're not going to listen to me. Let's just scrub them off the list and let's start again with the Gentiles. Much along the lines of what you would have thought from the time of Noah, right? Where God looked around the world and he said, no one is following me but this one family. I will wipe out the world, keep this one faithful family. However, the reality of what Paul is talking about here is the fact that no, you're not plan B. You're not the result of a fork in the road. You have been planned in God's plan from the beginning. And what is happening actually, that you are being grafted into the age-old Israelite family. That you are to view them as your siblings. Now, I don't know about you, I get along fairly well with my sibling because he's 12 years older, so it's kind of hard to argue with him, right? However, I do know that siblings have a tendency to argue from time to time. But they also love each other, and they usually also have each other's back. And so that's what Paul is saying here, is the fact that you are not somebody who is all of God's focus now. You are part of that larger family. So this idea from this prideful belief that the Jews were no longer a part of God's plan is now moved to a proper perspective that they always had been and that they always will be, and the Gentiles are now included in that as well. Now we go to this idea again of grafting in. Now again, the Gentiles could have had this idea of pride because at the time, and the same happens today, the idea of grafting into a plant is taking a better genetic stock of plant and grafting it in because that is the plant, or that is what you want growing. So I was trying to think of a good context from nowadays that we would understand here in Australia, and I thought that the proper one would be avocados. So if you think about avocados, you go to the shops, usually you see one of two types. You see Haas or you see shepherds, right? They're big, they're beautiful. If they open up and you time it right, they look like that. Sometimes, I don't know about in your family, we open them up and it's like, oh, it's black and it's gone. Um, so this is kind of, again, the thinking of the Gentiles. They're like, we are beautiful, we are wonderful, we are valued. And within avocados, did you know that there's actually over 20 different types of avocados? Even though we only usually see two within the shop, there's 20 different types. And they are critical for growing the avocados we see in the shops because Haas and Shepherd have really weak root systems, and they do not live well by themselves. And to get them to grow across all of Australia, what farmers have had to do over time is actually graft in Haas and Shepherd genotypes into different rootstocks to allow them to grow in colder climates or in more clay soils, etc. So this is what the Gentiles would have been expecting. We were grafted in, we are the better ones, right? However, what Paul is doing, he's completely inverting this and saying, well, you know, you guys are actually the wild type. And so if we were to go to the wild type version of what avocados look like, this is what a wild type avocado looks like. Do you really want to spend two bucks on that? <laughs> I don't. Right? And so this is what he's saying to them. And so it would have been a bit of a, you know, kind of a, have them sit up and take notice and be like, I'm that? Why is God grafting me in if I'm that? So, he's bringing them from this prideful idea that they're the better stock, and then showing them that they are, again, going back to that sibling idea, they are co-inheritors, and they are, you know, someone that is valued, but not necessarily in the traditional way. 
Next, we can turn to the Jewish converts, who are the second group that I think that this is talking to. And they're, you know, Paul is trying to move them from a position of confusion to a position of clarity. So if you remember, you know, within this idea, they were the chosen people, they were going to go to heaven, and that's where they would spend eternity. And within their idea, you know, that was for them, that was for them only. And yet, as we said earlier today, God also had this commission that through them, all families of the world would be blessed. Now, the idea that we would have in our tradition or our current context, right, would be send the missionaries, right? If we want to spread the good word, we always have this idea, let's send missionaries. And as a church, we support a number of different missionaries every year to allow them to be able to set aside a normal job and go out to different areas of the world to be able to preach the gospel. Now, it's easy within our frame of mind of what a missionary looks like to think that during the time um, of ancient Israel, that they did not take this on board, that they did not take the idea of a missional stance very seriously. However, and that's the attitude I would have had, but when I was preparing for this message, I was looking at it a little bit more, and actually what was really interesting is they actually did have a missional attitude. However, it's very different from what we would consider. And the reason is because ancient Israel, as opposed to us, they did not have separation between the state and the religion. And so for them, actually, to be missional involved everything associated with expanding their borders, etc. And so if we go from a few different quotes here, this one from Michael Bird, who's an Australian philosopher in this area, he says, there are, of course, different ways of trying to convert people to another religion, such as through proclamation, so that is what we would consider missionary work, through military conquest, the written medium, cultural inducements, etc. All of these missionary methods, if we can call them as such, can be related to different episodes and events during ancient Judaism. So actually, they did take on board to some degree this idea that through them all families of the world would be blessed. Similarly, a a quote here um, from David Duell is along this line of the fact that they took this relatively seriously and they would actually first off send out when, you know, to the borders of their country, they would send out priests or people who had been commissioned by the priests to make sure that those who were on the periphery were actually maintaining, you know, their their religion and, and maintaining God's laws. And what's also interesting is that when Israel was then taken over later on, certain ones of the kings of the different countries around them that took over them actually then commissioned those priests to go out and continue doing their missional work. However, what the thing was, if we come back to the current time within Paul's church, is that the Jews of the time had converted, yes, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and they were getting, you know, okay with this idea of Gentiles, but their idea was that those Gentiles, again, had to come over and had to become Jewish, that they couldn't just proclaim with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord and be fine. And so, what that would have involved for them would have been a very long process for the Gentiles to come over rather than just, you know, reciting a prayer and believing by faith. It's actually a process that would have taken about a year. And this is a list of what you would have to do today if you did want to become Jewish. It is quite an involved process. It is not as simple as what, you know, Jesus presented within the second covenant. And so this is what they're struggling with here. And so what you know, Paul is saying here, again, comes back to this idea, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
And he's saying it's just as simple as that. And so the confusion then for the Jews is that the Gentiles must adopt Jewish tradition to be saved. The clarification is all people are saved, but it's by faith. A second confusion that the Jews would have had was the fact that they got to pick and choose, right? They got to pick and choose where they went. They got to choose who and how things were going. And yet again with this imagery of grafting, the one who has the power in this situation is the gardener. And they are shown, the Jews are shown in this imagery as the branches. And so Paul is reassuring them to some extent, but also chastising them and saying, you don't get to say how this works. This is God who does this. This is God who grafts people in. And so again, this is this confusion of the Jewish leaders dictated who is acceptable. And Paul is saying, nah, God is the one who dictates who is acceptable and he is the orchestrator of it all. The third group of people that we see within this imagery here are these branches that are, that are pruned out and set off to the side. Now again, for the audience that he's talking to, they would have been familiar with Jesus' um, uh, parable of, of the vine and the branches. But what's interesting here is there's a, again a slight divide here. In, in John where it talks about this, the branches that are pruned out are actually tossed onto the fire. However, in Paul's interpretation or use of this imagery here, he's saying actually those branches are cut off and set to the side. And what would have been again confronting for the audience he was talking to is the fact that these branches actually would have been what we would call Jewish zealots. These are the Jews who would have held to the Torah. These would have been the Jews who would have been the ones who knew, you know, the scriptures backwards and forwards, those who were the most pious of the pious. And so these would have been the people who Paul's audience would have thought they are the ones who definitely are going to be getting into heaven because they are, you know, following all the rules. And yet, you know, Paul is saying, no, these are the ones who, you know, essentially are spiritual deadwood. And what's really interesting with this is if we think about it, the person who is writing this, Paul himself, was one of those zealots. Before his conversion, he was commissioned by the priest to go out and bring the people back into line, to make sure the Gentiles would not be infiltrating into the church, to make sure that the church wouldn't be happening. And so Paul is actually speaking from a position of, of saying, you know, this is, these, these people you might think pious, but God views them differently. They have not decided, you know, to put their faith in the Messiah. And so Paul is playing on this jealousy aspect here, but, you know, we get this idea first off, you know, again, that those Jews, those, jeal those zealous Jews would have been on the periphery and saying, okay, well, if you're saying that the Gentiles are being grafted in because I was cut out, does that mean that there's, you know, the, this fact of they're kicking me out of my promised kingdom? And again, Paul, you know, says to them, no, that's not it. There is not a one-to-one -one correlation here. Yes, they're getting grafted in, but you have the chance as well of being included. Another aspect, so, you know, there is a spot for all people, is that idea, hopefully to lead them to joyous reunion again back in the family. You also would have had this idea within, you know, the Jewish culture, they have known for millennia what the blessing of God would have looked like. They would have known how God leads. They would have known, you know, how the people of God will prosper under his blessing. And yet they would have had, you know, they would have been looking in at this early church and saying, wait a second. 
that early church is sharing everything it has. That early church has people who are, you know, looking after each other. There is no want within that church. That church is growing. That church is showing the love of God. How can that actually happen apart from God? Again, it's making them sit back and think, and Paul is hoping through all of this that they themselves will then, you know, go that step further and be like, I'm going to look into this further. I'm going to ask, well, you know, is this actually true? Is this actually the way that God had planned? Is this a new revelation? And one of the things that, you know, we might... What is interesting this weekend, it was also pointed out to me, is the fact that, you know, the fact that there is going to be a remnant of these people who will come back, who will be regrafted in because of this jealousy or envy, because of the questioning that is um, led to from there. Now, depending on the different uh, versions that you might be reading this within your scripture, you might actually come across um, a phrase in there that Paul says that all of Israel will be brought back. And that's caused some consternation. And it actually, if you look it up, there's a lot of different ways that that could be interpreted. It could be interpreted as the fact that, you know, Israel, even though they've rejected the Messiah because they were part of the promise, that they will be brought into heaven anyway. And you could also look at it the opposite way. You could say that, well, you know, it is those who, in looking into this, into this faith thing, realize that Jesus is the only way and that they come to faith so that they become Israel by faith and it is that Israel who will be saved. And if you look at the scriptures, the, you know, commentaries would argue that that is probably the interpretation that Paul would have you hear. Because if it was all of Israel, regardless of what they believe, that would indicate there's two ways to God. And actually, there isn't. There is only one way, and that is through Christ. Another th interesting thing um, that was pointed out to me that's really cool, I think, as well, is that the regrafting in of these, these zealous Jews into the family of faith is a requirement um, for... Oh, sorry, I skipped a few here. Is a requirement for the fact of that went before Christ's second coming. And so again, within God's larger plan, as we look outwards, the regrafting in of these Jews is required and essential to God's plan. Finally, I, I think that this is equally applicable to us today. And I've titled this one, From the Periphery into Partnership. And so in this case, you know, I'm coming back to this idea. I said you were going to get a bit of a biology lesson today. This is where it comes in. So remember I said I like the mechanistic nuts and bolts. I come from, you know, half of my family is artistic and half of my family are engineers and then I'm the weird one in the middle that did biology. However, I like to think that I'm kind of like my father in the fact that, you know, I like the mechanistic nuts and bolts. And when I began reading this passage, and as we were talking about this at Sermon and Scripture, you know, I got really excited about, you know, this grafting in idea and, you know, how that pertains and how that aligns with, you know, this is a beautiful little idea or picture of what our, you know, our spiritual life from its inception to the end actually looks like. And so I'm going to teach you a little bit of biology, as I said. And so this is a cartoon of a plant. What you hopefully see at the bottom are the roots, the green parts are the stems, and the leaves. 
Now within a plant when it's growing, the way it gets nutrients and water from the soil up into the leaves where it's needed, it takes them in through the roots, yes, but then that water and those nutrients travel on a super highway called xylem. So these are a type of cell called xylem. So that's the blue in the picture. Hopefully it looks blue. Well, it actually looks kind of black in this case. Okay, and so that's what's feeding the leaves. So again, if we go back to this idea of within um, the passage we looked at, the root is actually the promises of God, and that is what is feeding the people of Israel as well as the Gentiles. The next thing that's happening is that the water and those nutrients in the leaves through a process called photosynthesis, this gets made into nutrients that is required both for that stem and that leaf to grow, but then that is also not only kept within the leaf or the branch where it's made, but it's then shared with the rest of the plant so the rest of the plant can also grow and in the grafting idea so that grafts themselves can take and grow before they're self-sufficient. The way that's shared is through another set of cells or another superhighway called phloem. So I want you to think xylem coming up from the bottom, phloem sharing around, okay? That's the end of the science lesson. So within our, within our spiritual life, we can look at it this way. We as Gentiles have been grafted into the family of God. When we do declare with our mouths and believe in our hearts, this is what happens. We are grafted in. But within that plant situation, the very first thing that has to happen, if that graft is going to take, is that it has to connect the xylem to the xylem of the plant, right? Because that's where it's getting its water and some of its initial nutrients, right? Same thing within our spiritual life. We have to connect in to what God would have us, you know, into God's spirit. We have to connect into his promises. We have to, to leave behind, you know, that sinful self. And while within this grafting, you know, situation, you may be like, you pop it into the plant, you wrap it up, and ta-da, it works. You know, it may seem very simple, and it may seem very simple as well within a spiritual context to say, you just believe. Ta-da, I'm a Christian, that's it. And yet then, you know, a few weeks later, a few days later, a few months, a few years later, you're like, gosh, you know, it's so hard to leave behind my old self. I find myself falling back into sin. Did I not actually get grafted in? Maybe it's harder than, I, maybe it, 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 it shouldn't have been that hard, right? But if you look within the biological system, remember I said there are thousands of proteins within your cells doing things. For that xylem to connect, that is a huge, huge step for that plant. And it takes thousands of proteins working together for it to, to happen. Might look natural, but it's a lot of beautifully designed creation. So if you feel that you've been grafted, or you know that you've been grafted into the family, but you're still struggling with that initial connection, don't lose heart. Remember, there are others around as well that you can talk to. There are pastors here that can encourage you. Following that connection to the xylem, the next thing that you know that that graft has taken is you begin to get growth. And so this is the part where, you know, still you're getting that, that nourishment from the root and you always will get nourishment from the root within a plant. Um, however, as the leaves, as I said, start growing out, you start photosynthesizing, making a little bit of stuff for yourself. However, before the leaves get too much bigger, you have to connect in, or the next thing that has to connect in is that second superhighway, the phloem. Because there are other branches that will be sharing some of their excess strength and nutrients with you through that phloem so that you can begin to develop and grow. 
So again, within our spiritual life, you can't just stand there by yourself and be an isolated Christian if you expect to be able to grow and do well within this situation, right? You have to connect with your brothers and sisters. And if we go back to the, the biology of this situation of, you know, well, you can question, well, you know, I'm getting the water I need from the root of the promise. I'm getting my nutrients. You know, maybe I can, maybe I don't need to connect my, my phloem. What happens then? I can tell you from the biology situation, it's really not good. Because over time, that plant will start to try and send out some of its, its excess to the rest of the plant, and it, it bottlenecks here. So that's why you see it bulging there. So it can't actually share its excess with the rest of the plant. And by maintaining its excess, and by not being able to take anything from its brothers and sister branches, over time, this branch actually will die, and it will have to be pruned out. So from within our situation, I can think of two key examples of where this might happen. The first one, we like to consider this a consumer Christian. So this is someone who's like, you know what? I just need to come to church maybe once a week, once a month, a couple times a year. I'm going to get a little bit of spiritual building blocks, and I'll be fine by myself. The second thing that we can have, though, is someone who is connected, who is here, who's here all the time, who's giving, giving, giving every single second of the day to this extent that they then burn out. And then they're like, oh, I can't do this anymore. And they cut themselves off completely and walk away from any contact or any service. You might be saying, Jonathan, are you saying to me that I have to, you know, constantly be giving or that I can never take a pause from my involvement within the church or with my brothers and sisters? And please, no, that is not what I am saying. In these two situations, these are people who have cut themselves off willingly. And what happens then is, you know, especially in the burned out situation is what I've seen over the years is that some people, yes, they'll, they'll take that break and that is healthy. But some people will take that break and then that break becomes a week and then months and then years, and then they disappear. So please, don't cut yourself off from your brothers and sisters. Because not only do you need that, you know, the sharing of their strength, but they need from you as well your strength, your knowledge, your insight. Now you may say to me, do I actually have anything to give? I don't think I have anything special. I would say a word, but I shouldn't say it. I'll say, that's silly. Um, you know, that is silly of you to think each and every one of us God has created, and God has created amazing work in us. And I think, you know, I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine a couple weeks ago, and he said, I don't know if people know what actually a spiritual gifting is or what their gifts are. And I think that's true, but I think, I think it's true from the perspective that we actually sit there sometimes and think, oh, well, I don't really have anything to give because we overlook what we're naturally good at. You love cooking? Why don't you make something extra this week and share with somebody who's doing it hard? If you love to sit down and have a cuppa and just talk with people, why don't you invite someone over who you don't know and just get to know them? These are spiritual giftings of hospitality. If you're good at administration and think that, you know, kids' ministries is important, but you wouldn't be caught dead in one of those classrooms out there, why don't you think about taking over from Kathy when she steps down later this year as superintendent of overseeing the administration of kids' ministries? 
You see, there are lots of different things that we can do. Are you good with your hands? Are you handy? I'm sure Michael Douglas would love to talk to you. There's always things around the church that need doing. Or people who can't afford to have something fixed at their house because they're going through a cost of living crisis that you could help. You have so much to give. And finally, one of the things that I would like to come back to that really gave me hope this week was thinking about this idea of what we would consider dead wood. You can look at these branches and think that there's nothing left of them, and I'm sure that every one of us has somebody within our family, within our friend group, who did declare with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed it in their heart and were on fire for God. And then they walked away. I can think of three people in my family right now that my heart aches for. And it's so difficult sometimes to pray for them because I look at them like they've been gone for 40 years, as if. And yet, it very clearly states here that God looks at them and sees something so different. And I would encourage you, if that is you, that you ha- either that you feel yourself that's you, or you know of someone, pray. Continue to pray faithfully that God would see in them a spark of spiritual, you know, awakening, and that he would graft them in such that they too could begin to grow again in faith. With that, I would like to call back the, the, um, the musicians. If you also feel like you yourself have cut yourself off from your church family, and you feel like, oh gosh, I'm going to get grafted out or pruned out, Don't think that. Again, going back to this natural situation, that plant will fight and fight to grow its flowing back so it connects into the plant so it can grow again. So what you see there, those wormy looking like things on the far right of the image are the phloem growing back. Similarly within you, the spirit will fight, will try and drag you back. Listen, listen and come back. Listen and reconnect, please. And similarly, if you are grafted in and you are strong in your graft, but you feel like God is pruning you, if you feel like you're a little bit, you know, muffled, let's take a page again out of the biology from colder systems where growers know that sometimes the graft will not survive a storm that is coming. And this is what happens in in cold climates where snow is coming. This is a rose bush right in, in autumn. We have to mound them up and cover them over to make sure that that graft will stay through winter and we cut them back so that the rest of the plant will not die. But we do that with the idea that come spring, we will remove all of that covering and it will have survived that storm. Same with you. If you feel that, know that God is doing that with intention, that one day that you will flower again. Thank you.